This episode is brought to you by Essentia. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So we're going to talk today about something that we're both completely obsessed about. And increasingly, I'm finding business leaders want to talk about it to the exclusion of everything else. And that is artificial intelligence, in particular, the newer generation of artificial intelligence, generative artificial intelligence, and about how it is both transforming their businesses and indeed transforming the entire economy. Yeah. I mean, if you're not talking about AI in your business, you're probably not going to do very well in business in the future, are you? Because this is a key thing. Just to point out to people as well, because I know when we talk about AI and we talk about generative and and non-generative, just so you understand, non-generative, basically it analyzes stuff already out there to make predictions. Generative AI, which is the key one here, creates stuff that doesn't exist. And in this episode, we're going to focus, aren't we, on the impact that this generative AI could have in terms of, you know, what it means for productivity in businesses, what it means for jobs, you know, how this may or may not be like other industrial revolutions that we've seen. And, you know, where Britain's place is in all of this, you know, are we going to be at the forefront or are we going to be at the back of the pack? So as you say, there are two, I think, big questions just to summarise. One is, is this going to make most of us richer or poorer? Big, biggest question of all, I would say. And then secondly, um, this whole issue of where the UK is in all of this, which I think is, is, as you say, also terribly important. So should we kick off by talking about this concept of an industrial revolution? I've, yeah. I've said so many times on this show, this is an industrial revolution. An industrial revolution is when a particular technology not only changes the way that some of us work, but it's got to change the way that most of us work and also leads to extraordinary amounts of of innovation. So it's this combination of touching every aspect of our working lives and leading to new jobs and new businesses. And the reason why generative AI looks as though it's going to be the most radical 
of all industrial revolutions of our lifetimes as important, perhaps even more important than the dawn of the electric age, is because it replicates human intelligence. In other words, it has the potential to replace us. And one of the things that we need to explore in all of this is whether generative AI is indeed going to be developed to put us out of jobs or whether it's going to be our great helper, whether it's going to make humans more productive. Because those are the two routes that it could go. It could make us redundant or it could make each of us way better at what mm. we do. And with the industrial revolutions we've seen in the past, there's the kind of short-term impact and the longer-term one as well, isn't there? You know, Because in the longer term, you know, it can change landscapes, it can change geography of countries, it can change, you know, who's discriminated and who isn't. There's so many impacts out there. And that, that's very much the case with what's going to happen with generative AI and all of this too. But there's often a lag, isn't there, between all the benefits coming and that point where jobs are lost in the process of industrial revolutions and things. It can lead to some people having poorer lives, but in the longer term, the hope is it will lead to a prosperous life for everyone. So one of the things that's really important about all of this, as you say, is where the benefits of this flow. If we go back to earlier industrial revolutions, one of the things that weirdly isn't sort of taught enough in schools is everybody talks about how the Industrial Revolution ended up making people richer. You know, we in this country had the first Industrial Revolution. It, it made us into this great industrial powerhouse here in the UK. But for 40 to 50 years, individual workers, actually their wages and their living standards fell at the start of the Industrial Revolution. It's a period known as Engels' pause after the great economist who worked with Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels. You know, we shouldn't be under any illusion that when these important technologies, in this case steam and mass production, are rolled out, it takes an enormously long time for the fruits of that to flow yeah. down to ordinary people. And it did in that case. So one of the big questions here is who will benefit and indeed how fast this revolution yeah. is going to uh, take place. Industrial revolutions in the past took decades. There are very clear signs that this is going to be rapid. Now, that's not to say that everything about this industrial revolution will be known within a matter of a year or two. The rollout is likely to take you know, considerable numbers of years, but the speed of adoption does now look to me to be very rapid. I was having a dinner the other night with somebody who works in a business that is all about supplying information to consumers. He has just put a new AI tool, rolled it out for 500 of his employees who connect with customers. And within a matter of weeks, those people became 15% more effective. That is an astonishing off-the-charts increase in the value that those individuals are creating. To be frank, this is not even 
the most sophisticated form of generative AI being rolled out in this business. What, this what is, did it do? So what, what was so the... So basically what it does is it allows these people to look at the information that's in the business and sort it out in a much more rational way, tailored to the needs of the customer much more quickly. And generative AI can be used in pretty much every sector, can't it? Because I was looking at how it's being used, for example, in marketing. So you've got a company which makes automated video production. So what they'll do is a company will say to them, I need you know some a video that will demonstrate how my product can be used. They'll just put in some text explaining what it needs to do. And then this generative AI will create the video for them. So you don't have to do any filming or hire out studios and it can be easily edited as well. So you might say, hang on a minute, I actually want it to be a woman who demonstrates it rather than a man or I want there to be kids in it or whatever it is. And then that can be easily edited and then the AI will just create it for you. So you can see, can't you, straight away how that would be incredibly useful and really reduce businesses, marketing budgets and things like that. Then you've got something like education. I know there'll be lots of teachers uh, listening to this who'll be dead keen on this one. So for example, there's a company that can make customised course material. So you just tell it what you want the topic to be and then it'll generate detailed lesson plans. It'll give you lecture notes and other content you might need. And again, you can customise it to a particular age group or a particular way that people learn things. So there's clever stuff like that. In farming as well, I really like this one because you might think farming's behind the time when it comes to tech, but there's something called Farmer Chat which you can get anywhere in the world. And it means farmers in real time can have questions answered that they might have on, I don't know, what should I do with my crop management or my pest control? And you get these generative AI answers, which will basically, you know, save you from having to work it all out yourself and do experiments or whatever. You can just get this advice from all the data that's been fed in from farmers all over the world. And you, know, you can base it on the weather or whatever else. But all of that potentially could come at a cost. And that's what we're kind of talking yeah, about, isn't so, it? The balance and, of the two. Yeah. And, and if I just look at my own working life, you know, I use a whole range of different generative AI apps and programs for doing all sorts of things. So if I want to research a subject and I've got not very much time, you know, I can just ask a question of, um, for example, GPT-4 in normal language. And the important point about generative AI is you just speak to it in the way that you would speak to a human being. And actually, most of the time, it gives me back information that it would take me much longer to obtain if I was doing a normal search via Google or a search engine. And that in itself saves an enormous amount of time. Now, That you know, would have made me redundant when I was your producer, wouldn't it? You know, back in the day at the BBC, that would have been me gone. You wouldn't well, have needed no, me. No, I, I can't ask GPT-4 to ring up the Chancellor's office uh, yet and arrange the interview. So, so, so but, but maybe <laughs> maybe it won't be long. Um, anyway, or maybe, frankly, you know, we'll get to a stage where we no longer have a Chancellor of the Exchequer, but we simply have a super intelligent <laughs> AI running the economy rather more efficiently. Anyway, the point... Um, that what is making is, in terms of my own case, it just, you know, and this is just a straightforward productivity gain, it just speeds up lots of tasks that I do. And that is all about augmenting 
an individual, a human being, in this case, my productivity. How are you using it at the moment? Well, we use it in the slime business, which means I owe you 20 quid. Um, so yeah, in the Gootopia business, because we use it for, because we're you know, still in early stages, there's lots of kind of different schemes and grants and things that we can apply for. So we get a generative AI to do the submissions for us, basically. And also it helps with things to do with staffing and organising rotors and again takes away a lot of the kind of admin that the you know the people I run the business with would have had to spend lots of time on and, and then in my personal life I use it to create bedtime stories for my little girl so I'll basically say can you tell me I'm like I say to her what do you want in your story and she'll be like I want something with Frankenstein a ghoul and one of the Spice Girls and so I will just say can you tell me a story on one of the you know with all of these elements and it will and it'll create this amazing story. <laughs> wow. But there you are. <laughs> uh, but, but, but what we've both done here is given examples of how AI makes an individuals, in this case, you and me, more productive. But also we've given examples of how AI is making whole jobs redundant. Mm. And one of the things that is actually sort of depressing for me is that we're not having a national debate about this stuff. If I go back to the 1990s, which I do quite often, don't I? But yeah. anyway, I'm going to go back to the 1990s again. <laughs> and one of the things that was very striking about the build-up to the 97 general election is you had, for example, in a leader of the Labour Party at the time, Tony Blair, a leader who repositioned his party by trying to show that he understood the way that the economy was changing in a very radical way. So I did an interview with him uh, in which he embraced, when I was political director of the FT, in which he embraced globalisation, right? Which was a huge, a huge moment for the Labour Party, just because globalisation, frankly, was about the kind of free trade that meant that jobs would inevitably be lost in the UK. His argument was that actually free trade would generate prosperity across the world. And if we lost jobs in the UK in manufacturing, other jobs would be created in services. And although, you know, globalisation has done lots of damage to parts of the UK and actually governments failed to, in some cases, invest in that, you know, the Northeast we talked about a lot, there was yeah. not enough government investment in the Northeast to compensate for the damage that was done to manufacturing. The political point that, that one was making was that he was showing, Blair, that he understood the modern economy and the way the world was changing. And I think that actually, you know, very much helped the momentum, the political momentum that was behind New Labour and that victory. It is striking to me that we are going through an industrial revolution that, in my view, is more important, more pervasive than the digital revolution, and at least as important as these globalization trends that were becoming much more apparent back then. And, you know, you would expect in these circumstances a Keir Starmer or a Rishi Sunak to be talking about this stuff to the exclusion of almost everything else, and they aren't. They are not talking either about the enormous benefits that potentially could be reaped for the country and for individual people, or indeed the risks. I'm not talking about the risk that Rishi Jinnah has talked about, which is that when you create a super intelligence, they could wipe us out. And I'm not trying to minimize the fact that there are genuinely what, what are called existential dangers with AI. But right now, the point about AI is it's about the economic impact here 
and now and about how you, in a sense, manage it for good and try to protect us from harm. And that is not a subject of debate that we are hearing enough about. But that, again, comes back to the kind of short-termism, isn't it? It's because while we're in this period now of AI being adopted by businesses, you are getting the headlines of like, you know, it was last year, wasn't it? IBM said that they were going to suspend hiring in HR because they reckon now about a third of those roles could be replaced by AI. So it's, I totally agree with you that, you know, we've got to move with the times and the businesses who do well are the ones who accept they need to, you know, a change and adapt rather than hunker down and be defensive when new tech comes in. But it's that, that's a hard sell, isn't it? To people who are just thinking, oh, hang on a minute, IBM are getting rid of loads of people. They're not going to be hiring anymore. Well, that's, you know, that's bad. And so it's a hard sell, isn't it? to people in the short term when there's a, a, a revolution with technology. Do you remember I talked to you recently about how the UAE was way ahead of this country in terms of, you know, sending its civil servants over to Oxford to retrain, to understand AE, sending out text to every citizen, uh, pointing them towards how they can use artificial intelligence, how to learn about it, which programs to use. They've developed their own large language model, generative AI system called Falcon. You know, it's amazing that an economy like that and a government like that is being so progressive compared to anything yeah. we're seeing, uh, you know, actually throughout Europe. Because we are behind the times on this. I mean, you talked about us being part, you know, we were at the forefront of the, the steam and electric revolution, but we are behind on this, aren't we? Like, we don't have the com the big companies who are the leaders in this, like NVIDIA, which is, you know, this, this chip maker. It's a company that started making uh, the processing chips for video games, but then realised actually they, they were perfect for generating artificial intelligence as well and being used in all of that. And they're the kind of the powerhouse in all of this, aren't they, this American company? As you say, much of the infrastructure of artificial intelligence is provided by these GPUs, these processing units that they manufacture. But the excitement around, around them at the moment is off the charts. In just the first few weeks of this year, the value of NVIDIA has increased by $600 billion. It's, this is now a company that's worth almost $2 trillion. Briefly earlier this week, its value exceeded that of Amazon. Right? And, but then look again at why Microsoft is the most valuable company in the world, worth more than $3 trillion. Dollars and you know an astonishing uh, market value. Um, the excitement around Microsoft is largely about its partnership with OpenAI, one of the absolute leaders in the creation of these generative AI models. It's the owner of GPT-4 and ChatGPT, and you know Microsoft is in the process of rolling out this. Uh, AI add-on to all of those services, software services that pretty much, well, so many businesses across the planet use. So, you know, whether it's its email systems or its word processing systems or its spreadsheet systems or its, you know, presentation PowerPoint systems, it's it's rolling out this thing called Copilot. And at the moment, Copilot has been offered to a fairly limited number of 
customers. And for example, Copilot is supposed when it's effective to allow any business that buys it and adds it on to its traditional Microsoft services, that it will collate vast amounts of the data that are within the business and again make anybody within that business more productive in the sense of being able to obtain all the information within the business much more efficiently. You know, let's be clear, there are teething problems. Some customers are saying that it is a bit clunky, that Copilot isn't working quite yet in the way that they, they would want it to. And it's also throwing up some there's this concept of hallucinations, which is where an artificial intelligence gives you the wrong answer. And some businesses are saying some of the answers about the business that Copilot is giving our hallucinations. They're wrong. But one of the things it does, we, you know, we're all on these blooming Teams meetings. One of the things that Copilot does is it in real time records every contribution that anybody makes in one of these Teams meetings. So if you miss the meeting, um, not only will it give you the text of what everybody said, you can also ask it to, so what are the important, you can actually ask the programme, what's the most important thing that's been said oh. in the meeting? So it's a really wonderful way yeah. of not joining in, you know, one of those awful conference calls that we all hate. My AI co-pilot has just said that we need to now go to a break, Robert. So should we resume this conversation after a little break? Why not? Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I've always thought this about things like the cloud and data. Where does it all go? And it goes, doesn't it, to these kind of supercomputers, these massive data centers, these places that need incredible amounts of power to run them. So you're right. One of the interesting questions about this industrial revolution is where is the power going to be? And there's a lot of power in owning the technology that underpins it. So that's why NVIDIA yeah. talked about its processes so valuable. Um, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, uh, Microsoft is so valuable is because of its partnership with OpenAI. Yeah. There's a business called Anthropic, which is another generative AI business, which has a partnership with Amazon. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why Amazon is likely 
is seen to be one of the winners in all of this is because of the work that it's doing with Anthropic. We this had a whole set. Is this we had a, the we, Amazon Web Services, the AWS stuff? You're right. Amazon Web Services, this extraordinary cloud business, it's what's called a hyperscaler. And there are a very limited number of these hyperscalers in the world. What a hyperscaler means is you own these enormous data centers, the size of many football pitches, which are just filled with servers and computers. And this is the computing power that any big AI system needs to harness to do all the processing that makes it act like a human intelligence. They do billions of sums at once. They do like incredible calculations on so many different levels that it would take years and years and years and years and years for a human to do. Well, you know, I mean, it, you know, th- these are basically gods compared to humans in that sense. Um, and, you know, Amazon has a hyperscaler. Microsoft is a hyperscaler. Google, obviously, is again at the forefront of, of AI investment and development. Meta, we talked about Meta mm. uh, in a program last week. Now, it isn't a hyperscaler. In fact, it has to lease some compute capacity. And it is also taking a different approach to the development of AI because its approach is a collaborative one. It's developing through what's called open source, whereas OpenAI, despite its name, has walls around its development. It is not open source. It's a bit of a misnomer, the OpenAI name in that sense. And again, there is a great debate going on about whether both industrially um, and indeed for the planet, it's better for these things to be behind walls or much more open and collaborative with developers uh, from all sorts of different organisations chipping in. The the argument being that if they're behind a wall, then some, I don't know, evil person who works in the business might be able to, to use the data for bad. But if it's open, then anyone in the world might be able to then use the data for bad. Is that the point that it's kind of they're trying to work out which is better? It's a bit like that. I think it is just what you want if you want to harness it for good. The argument in favour of an open structure is there's more transparency that if you had regulators and governments with the brains to understand this stuff, that with an open source approach, you can see what's going on and you can maybe limit the potential for bad. Whereas, you know, when you've got wholly proprietary systems that are kept wholly private, you are relying on the goodwill of the managers and the owners to share that information. And there are also there are also just interesting questions about pace of development. When you have a system that is open to the world and you're basically saying to the best brains in the world, come and join in and help us develop this stuff, there is also an argument that over time that will get you further faster. But although I have to say the experience of AI so far is actually these proprietary structures, these closed structures seem to be at the cutting edge. They seem to be further ahead. And so certainly in terms of those who are most advanced, they are not the open source Well, because uh, we, we talked, didn't we, a few weeks ago about all the carry-on at OpenAI with um, Sam Altman uh, leaving the business to go to Microsoft, then coming back. And this was a lot to do with this whole idea of, you know, what do they do with this information? And there were concerns at the top of the business, weren't they, that maybe Sam had different plans for it compared to, you know, what they wanted to do with it. And 
this whole altruistic movement. So there's all that going on as well. The thing I wanted to come back to, though, is, is kind of our place in all of this, because first of all, you mentioned about politicians understanding all of this. And there's, we've, we've said this quite a few times on the show about that there's that lack of skill, really, that knowledge about tech in the civil service and in government. And, and you know, then we've had like announcements which suggest that, you know, we're going to do stuff to be part of it. Like last year, I remember there was that big announcement saying they were going to invest £900 million in a supercomputer in Edinburgh. So, I mean, it's hard to think, what is a supercomputer? Well, basically, it's, you know, the world's fastest ever computer, something that's going to be able to do trillions and trillions and trillions of, of sums per second, you know, be able to process data and work things out. And it's called an exascale computer, this particular one. And exa is a, a mathematical term for 18 zeros, basically. That's how big of a number we're talking in terms of calculations it can do per second. So it's huge. And there is one at the moment. There's one in, in America called Frontier that's been online since 2022. And, and it is now the world's fastest computer as of November 2023. Although they're the known ones because there's a lot of talk as well about there being these kind of secret supercomputers in places, maybe used by the military or whatever. And so there's a bit of debate on who has got the fastest computer. But basically, Britain are trying to be part of this. But I mean, where are we at with it, Robert? Because like £900 million, but we, you know, we've seen other companies commercially investing way more than that in supercomputers. Is this enough? So I think you could certainly argue that we're behind the curve. Um, this thing is not going to be up and running, I think, till 2025. There's a related initiative going on in Bristol with a super powerful supercomputer that I am told is operational already, although I think it's still pretty early days in terms of its development. So we are investing and we are investing in what you might call the sort of fundamentals, trying to develop our own generative AI, both knowledge and capacity. But in commercial terms, we are massively behind the curve and neither of these initiatives will allow us to catch up anytime soon. But I was talking earlier about power and there are three sources, I think, of fundamental power in this new world. One was these hyperscalers, the data centers. The other is the know-how, the development of the AI systems themselves. But then finally, data is incredibly valuable because one of the important things about any form of intelligence, you just see it in our own lives, right? If we are taught shit, we then speak shit, right? With any AI system, you put bad data in, you put crap in, crap comes out the other end. And one of the things that we do have in this country is incredibly valuable data. Now, the most obvious data source that we've got in terms of you know really valuable initiatives could come is NHS health mm. data, right? We probably have the most valuable repository of uh, data on individuals' health of any country in the world because we because we have this NHS because we have this you know unified national health system. But there are a number of issues here. One is, as we all know, the NHS is massively behind the curve in actually having a central database of all this data. I mean, the history of technology in the NHS is one of the saddest histories, uh, you know, among the many sad 
you know, histories of technology rollout in the UK. And my goal as a country, we're bad at technology rollout. But then even if we get the rollout of that technology properly so that we can harness the data, there is then an interesting point about how do we make sure that the UK benefits from this data? There are lots of people who are saying, basically, we should give this data away. That would be a disaster, right? If this data is going to be exploited, it has to benefit in financial terms as well as in health terms, the people of Britain. Where is the work going on at the moment in government to make sure that given that we do have this astonishing competitive advantage, that we take advantage of it? But coming back to your point about what Tony Blair was saying about globalisation, wouldn't it potentially be helpful to the world if we did let someone else who's further on than us with AI have this information for the greater good because you know they want this information to basically look at things like the effects of drugs on specific genetic profiles and then they can develop customized therapies there's things that would benefit the entire world is it too siloed to think of it from a money point of view and think that actually I guess you're saying more than that because you're saying it should benefit the people of Britain but by us collaborating or giving it away to people who are further on than us with AI, that would benefit us anyway. So I would agree with you if healthcare development was, you know, basically philanthropic. Yeah, but, I'm afraid to, but I'm afraid to say yeah. some of the most valuable companies in the world are commercial pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, what I don't think is remotely appropriate is we give this, you know, data away so that the owners of those businesses become even wealthier. If we could harness it in a way that essentially, the, you know, the benefits were given for free to, you know, sick people across the world, great. But that's not the kind of world Isn't in which we live. it inevitable anywhere, though? Because I remember hearing this at an investment conference I was at where someone was talking about the pharmaceutical industry and saying how you'll get lots of amazing scientists who will be wanting to find, you know, the cure for cancer or whatever it is, but then they get snapped up by big pharma companies anyway. You know, they were suggesting that anything that could threaten pharmaceutical companies making money from treatment, um, because obviously if you find a cure, then people don't need the treatment anymore that those projects will just get snapped up by a big company anyway and shut down. And so isn't it inevitable that even if we are the country that uses the NHS data for whatever reason within the country, it'll end up abroad anyway? And, you know, isn't it better to have something okay, I'm more not collaborative? A I'm not a defeatist about this stuff. I'm a great believer in collaboration, but I just think there's a fundamental point, which is that this is our data, this is our property, and we shouldn't be giving it away. What are the solutions then to us being part of, of this wave, of us being at the forefront rather than the back? And you know, how should businesses think about it, I suppose, as well? One of the interesting things that Microsoft says, which I think is slightly disingenuous, but there is some truth to it in terms of how the UK can benefit, is... As I said to you, Microsoft, the most valuable company in the world, its boss, Nadella, says repeatedly that the reason for its success is because its services are more valuable to its customers than you know those services are valuable to Microsoft itself. And of course, there must be truth in that because people wouldn't buy all this Microsoft stuff, all these programs and uh, services if they didn't think they were going to make money out of them, right? And so one of the things that we could encourage, we, 
you and me, haha. You know, one of the things that governments, for example, and you know, influential business leaders could encourage is just the rollout of AI services across a whole range of British businesses as fast as possible. And this is in big businesses and small businesses. I was talking to you know the head of a lobby group that represents smaller businesses recently. And she was saying, it's incredibly depressing. It, you know, Among smaller businesses, people have hardly even heard of much of the stuff that's on offer. And so the other thing which is really important is that we don't get, in a sense, a hierarchy of, you know, because we've already got a problem in this country of way too many underperforming, low productive businesses. Unless smaller businesses roll AI out quickly, that, that problem of the productivity gap is going to get even worse. So one of the things that we just should be doing is encouraging our businesses to get ahead of the curve in terms of embracing this technology, because actually, you know, that will increase their prosperity and the growth rate of the country. Now, you know, somebody I respect in this area called Eric Brynjolfsson, he's an American academic. His view is that this will double the rate of productivity growth in the US from 1.5% a year to 3% a year. Now, that is a massive increase in the wealth and prosperity of America. We don't have any productivity growth in this country. If the rollout of AI, and our, we, you know, we have a service economy much like America's, if the rollout of, of AI could take us essentially from at the moment more or less zero productivity growth to 1.5% productivity growth, the benefits to our incomes could be very significant so long as and this is the point that we haven't really touched enough upon, but maybe we'll come back to. So long as those people who lose their jobs have the opportunity to retrain for the new jobs of the future. And again, there is just not enough being talked about. What do you do for those people who lose their jobs? And my own view is that if you want to embrace this industrial revolution, you've also got to put in place a whole new form of welfare state where broadly you say to somebody who's out of a job, right, you will now have a year or so to retrain and the state will pay your income for that period so long as you do acquire the new skills that are required in this changed economy. You could be so bold and so creative in this industrial revolution, or you could just bury your head in the sand, which is what's going on at the moment. And if you bury your head in the sand, do you know what's going to happen? Right? What's going to happen is hundreds of thousands of people are going to lose their jobs. Many of these will be middle-class jobs. For example, you know, accountancy is a huge industry in this country. Thousands of accountants will lose their jobs, right? Thousands of paralegals in that area will lose their jobs. Thousands of management consultants are going to lose their jobs, right? And you know, this is already beginning to happen. Now, you know, you can, as a government, pretend that this damage is not materialising, or you can really come up with uh, creative solutions so that the, this is not like what happened to manufacturing and mining in the 1980s, but you can actually help these people into new careers. And there's, there's, a, there's a related point, which is, we just talked about how valuable Microsoft is, how valuable NVIDIA is. At the moment, the spoils of this great industrial revolution are clearly going to the founders and the owners. And it is massively worsening the problems of inequality we have with more and more super rich individuals who happen to understand the technology or happen to be investors benefiting to a tremendous extent. We have to find a way to make sure that this is not another winner-takes-all uh, industrial revolution. We have to make sure that the fruits do accrue to ordinary people.
I mean, this is, I think this is the my point about lifelong learning, though, that I've made a couple of times on the whole. We, as a country, think that, well, across the world, education is until you're 18 and then it stops. But my view very much is if we put more money into like our further education colleges so that they could be part of all of this. So like you say, if you if your job's going to go as an accountant, you can go back to college, which is all set up because it's, you know, it works with industry on everything to learn the next job. And then you can go back in and do that job. That would be a much more practical way of helping the economy through absolutely everything, not even just an industrial revolution, but through the fact that jobs change all the time and and the needs of businesses change all the time. It should be lifelong learning. It shouldn't be just qualifications to 18 and that's that's job done. And I know that But it also should be within big companies as well. Big companies should be taking more responsibility if you're retraining yeah, they people. Should work, but they should work with, you know, there's this I just think we often just forget about all the great training and college providers when that you know, like tomorrow, you, we we're interviewing Irene Dim, Irene Hayes, who owns runs Hayes Travel, and and they do all their own training from the age of sixteen in house. And you, more companies could do that, couldn't they? I know some do, but there's another thing I wanted to ask you. And it was a point you made about half an hour ago. But the government do have this pot for AI, which is a million pounds every year for the next ten years for the most groundbreaking AI research. Couldn't we have that? for small businesses in the terms of using it as well. Like this is about, you know, the creatives, the geniuses who are techie people creating great uses with AI. Shouldn't there be something as well for businesses and incentive there? Maybe it's not money, but maybe it's tax breaks and things that will allow them because they're the businesses. When we talk about the inequality that comes from revolutions, it's often the small businesses who don't have the money to buy the kit or have the time to understand the tech. So there should be more at that end, shouldn't there as well? So I think that is a very important point. I also want to mention something else that Eric Brynjolfsson recently said, which I thought was Need very... Need to get him on. We should get him on. I thought was very insightful. And to get back to you know one of the points we made right at the beginning, which is as a society, we are at a crossroads about whether we think AI is going to be our helper or whether it's going to replace us. And if you think, which I do, is that essentially the bulk of the work should be about making humans more effective rather than replacing humans, then you then need to look at tax structures. And one of the things that he points out, which is true of this country, and it's certainly true of America, is that the tax system encourages capital investment and investment in the kind of kit that would underpin AI rather than encouraging investment in people, right? In other words, the marginal tax rate of hiring a person is higher than the marginal tax rate Mm. of investing in kit. And if you are worried about machines replacing us, then that is the wrong structure of taxation. It should be cheaper to hire people than it is effectively to hire robots. I should just just remind people that this, at the moment, is the entire thrust, or was the entire thrust, of the last budget. The last budget was all about making it way cheaper for businesses to invest in capital. And you might argue that although capital investment, as a country, we've invested way too little in capital over the last 20, 30 years. Nonetheless, 
the tax system should not be geared against hiring people. I actually did a series for the BBC called Made in Great Britain, which looked at how industrial revolutions have changed um, different industries. So like how it's changed steel making and hat making and pottery and all sorts. So yeah, if you want to watch that as well, Made in Great Britain, it's still on the BBC iPlayer. Right then, uh, we should probably wrap things up. We'll, we'll be back to a normal episode again, won't we, next week? We do like doing the specials. If you've got any suggestions for particular topics you want us to focus on for an entire episode, just let us know. Rest is money at gmail.com or you can uh, just message us on our socials. Before we go, we just wanted to quickly mention as well, you've probably seen in the news this week that Body Shop, the Body Shop, the uh, famous smelly shop, as I used to spend a lot of my money there when I was a kid back in the 90s. Uh, but they've gone into administration, haven't they, Robert? We, we were talking about them on the show a couple of weeks ago. We, we were, and it is astonishing. They were only taken over by private equity, uh, a new private equity owner a few weeks ago. I mean, I, I genuinely can't remember a business being put into administration so fast by a new owner. And there is an enormous amount of mystery around it. Nobody seems to understand why this has happened quite now. So if we've got anything more intelligent to say about yeah. it, then it is a bit of a mystery and quite shocking. We will tell you about that next week. Yes. And also you can listen back to that episode when we discuss the body shop as well. It's in one of our earlier episodes from a few weeks ago. You'll see it in the little descriptions of the podcast to work out which one it is. But we do go into the history and what's happened and its demise and how they were trying to get back to being, you know, the big name on the high street for beauty, but we're up against lush and rituals and all that. Clearly it's it's not worked out for them, but uh, you can listen back to that episode as well. But that's it from us for this episode. We've got another interview for you this week as well Dame Irene Hayes owner and uh, the chair of Hayes Travel which It's a cracker if you is, want to yeah. understand about how to create a business Lovely Right we'll see you soon Bye bye See you soon